it all stems back to this intramural debate, really what is the reformed faith? And the canons of Dort are one of the most helpful documents in that they're so precise and so careful in delineating and protecting what the Bible really needs by sovereign grace. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith and for the Christian life is our doctrine of grace. How do we understand uh, conversion, and not just conversion, but regeneration, is a central question, not only to understanding doctrine correctly, but to understanding exactly what happened when uh, God first called us to his son, Christ Jesus. But if you've jumped into uh, either a biblical or a theological or even a uh, a historical study of uh, the doctrines of grace, you uh, will notice that uh, it's not without controversy. In the history of the church, there have been two sides generally that have uh, debated one another on this issue with uh, Reformed on one side and Arminian and Wesleyan understandings of grace on the other side. And if you're familiar with that history, you may also know that 2019 marks 400 years since the, uh, the meeting, uh, the very famous meeting of Dort, or what is better known as the Synod of Dort, and the different canons they put forth to respond to certain remonstrants who were protesting and pushing back against, uh, uh, say, Calvin's understanding of grace and uh, this type of debate in the 17th century is one that would uh, eventually define two very different traditions and their understanding of regeneration of conversion faith and repentance and exactly what is man's part and god's part in these two events well this this is such an important topic to understanding Uh, some of the basics about grace and and what it means to uh, be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, I've invited Kevin DeYoung to join us on the Credo podcast to talk about uh, how we should understand something like regeneration or effectual calling or conversion and how a Reformed view differs from, say, an Arminian or a Wesleyan view. Kevin is uh, really without need of introduction. Many of our listeners will know him from many of his books, uh, Taking God at His Word, uh, The Biggest Story, Crazy Busy, and so many others. Uh, I know our listeners have even uh, follow along with Kevin's blog uh, on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Some of you, though, may know him as a pastor, as he is senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. But he also teaches systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. Kevin, it is really a delight to have you on the Credo Podcast. It's great to be with you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. 
you know, I assume that there may be some uh, listeners who are familiar with the canons of Dort, especially if they've had somewhat of a um, an awakening of sorts to the doctrines of grace, or as they, you know, more commonly they're called the five points of Calvinism, that sort of thing. But I also uh, think I'm right in saying that, well, there's other listeners who Maybe they've heard something, or they may be more or less familiar with uh, these points, but not really understand what they mean. Uh, very rarely, though, does this type of discussion or even debate, uh, does it go back in time? Uh, we sometimes forget that, actually, uh, we're not the first, thing, the first ones to, to, to have this controversy or to have this type of debate over this critical issue. We go back to the 17th century. Uh, it, it is a very pressing issue with certain remonstrants uh, who uh, early on they are familiar with Calvin's theology, but they are reacting against it and eventually come to put forward, uh, it, really within the first decade of the 17th century, uh, there are five Arminian articles. And in time, you have certain reform thinkers responding to those articles and uh, defending what they believe is a biblical understanding of grace. Perhaps you could just start us off for those listeners who are less familiar and just introduce us to those early years, 1603 to 1610, and talk to us about who is Arminius, uh, who are some of Arminius's followers, why is his understanding of who man is and what grace is, why is it so controversial? Well, you did a great job, Matthew, laying things out from the 16th into the 17th century. So we have to remember that this began as an intra-reformed Calvinistic debate, of course, using Calvinism as somewhat anachronistic. The Reform movement was much bigger than just Calvin, but a leading figure. Uh, so Arminius dies in 1609. He's a theology professor, and he begins to have certain qualms with certain parts of the Reformed tradition as it had been received through the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession up to that point. Those from a Dutch Reformed background like I am know that the three forms of unity are the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and later the Canons of Dort. Uh, but Arminius preached a, a series of sermons on Romans, and he began to emphasize free will in a way that sounded a little out of sorts from where he had been and where the Reformed faith had understood these doctrines. He's a professor in 1603 at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and he eventually is set to debate a man named Gomeris, who we would say now is on the, the Reformed, or might say the traditional Reformed side, and their dispute doesn't seem to settle any of the controversial points, but only widen them farther. So following his death in 1609, there's a, a movement, which later would be called the, the Arminians, and they are the ones who set forth their five Arminian articles, or remonstrance, that is uh, a statement of protest, so as much as we talk about the five points of Calvinism, so historically there were first five points of Arminianism. The reason <laughs> we have five points of Calvinism is they were responding to these five points from Arminius. And it's actually, you know, Matthew, you have a, a 
a great book on the Canons of Dort as well, and you can get some of the historical uh, background in my little volume too, and you can read their five points because once you read what they're saying, you understand better how the Synod was trying to respond to these various points related to man's sinfulness and regeneration and conversion and atonement and perseverance. So the, uh, without going into all the details, you know, the controversy just ramps up then through the 1610s, and it's not only a theological controversy, we have to remember, but it's a geopolitical national controversy. This is threatening to divide the Netherlands, and as is sometimes the case with theological disputes, there's theology, but then there's a layer of class and economics and, and interest from Spain, and there's a, a number of different layers that make this a particularly combustible theological debate. And so the states general in the Netherlands decides that they need to call a synod to address this. And so the synod meets from 1618 in November through May in 1619, and really an international synod, mostly from the Netherlands, but a number of others from Britain and Germany and Switzerland, and they come together over a series of months and different sessions to try to settle these disputed points of doctrine and their results in 1619 is what we now know as the Canons of Dort, and comes to us five points of Calvinism. Of course, Calvinism is much bigger than this. And, and then Tulip, which is probably a, a creation of maybe just the last hundred years, that particular acronym. But it all stems back to this intramural debate, really what is the Reformed faith? And the Canons of Dort are one of the most helpful documents in that they're so precise and so careful in delineating and protecting what the Bible really means by sovereign grace. You know, I love what you just said there at the end, because, uh, and this is not the first book, uh, this new book you've written, Grace Defined and Defended, what a 400-year-old confession teaches us about sin, salvation, and sovereignty of God. Uh, this isn't the first book you've read, written on a, a confessional or a doctrinal statement, um, but uh, I, I love what you just said, because when we go back to these confessional statements and maybe move, move aside some of the caricatures that, that we have due, due to our you know, popular uh, understanding, uh, when we go back to these confessional statements, there's, a, there's just a, a level of precision that's present that is, is uh, biblically attuned, uh, theologically robust, and at the same time, and, and you definitely bring this out, at the same time, these confessional statements also are, they're not just some abstract or, or cold, you know, confessional, doctrinal, um, you know, animal. Actually, uh, these were pastors and scholars who had the churchgoer, the pastor in mind, and the way that they're articulating these doctrines of the faith uh, is extremely relevant for how they understand the Christian life and godliness and even life in the church. Now, that being the case, uh, you've mentioned uh, grace and and how uh, these remonstrants are articulating grace in a way that's going to clash with 
what will be reform thinkers uh, at Dort. But maybe we should back up a second and just talk about sin itself. Um, what is it about uh, what is it about the the remonstrant and the Arminian understanding of depravity, and then what they what will become known as provenient grace? What is what is it, what is it about provenient grace and depravity that is going to differ in significant ways from how the reformed are going to understand man's depravity and need for grace? Yeah, that's such an important question because uh, we want to be fair to what the Arminians were arguing, but we also need to be very careful because I think many, many people, maybe even pastors, students listening to this, uh, certainly people in our churches, even good Reformed churches, if they went online today and read through the, the five points of the Arminians, I bet many, many people would say, oh, that, that sounds pretty good. Mm. Uh, it, I mean, th- these aren't statements that are saying, and therefore Jesus is not the Son of God. Uh, it's not bold in that way. It deals with very important nuances, but they're distinctions that really matter. It's not just hair-splitting because we want to prove that uh, we can be smarter than you are with our doctrine. Right. You know, th- these things really matter, and it gets to the point you raised about sin. So, uh, you know, you can read the, the dis- dispute between Reformed and Arminians and at the Senate of Dort. They all agree that sin's a problem. They all agree that sin has rendered us liable to God's judgment. They all agree that we need grace. Like the Arminian documents talk at length about the need for grace, but it's in what way do we need this grace? So if you read through the Arminian articles, for example, they don't make clear whether our inability as fallen sinners is a death or a sickness, Mm. and whether the remedy we need is one that we cooperate with God or one in which He works singularly, uniquely, by himself to affect in us. So there, there's the rub of the, of the difference. They certainly, Arminians affirm that we're sinners and we need to be forgiven, but to what degree are we unable to make any movement to God? So the Reformed are going to say, not just sick, we're absolutely dead. So you can't throw a dead man, a life preserver, well you can, but he's not going to grab it. He's not drowning. He's at the bottom of the ocean, dead. He needs a miracle of new life. And if that's his predicament, then there is no way for him to cooperate, which is why the Arminians insert the doctrine of, well, there's a prevenient grace. There's a grace that then gives him the ability then to cooperate and to make a decision for himself. And the Reformed Theologians rightly say, well, that takes away too much from God and gives to man much more than he deserves and much more than Scripture gives to him in this work of conversion or regeneration. I like the way you put that because, in fact, I've even uh, used that illustration in class a number of times. Uh, Just in uh, everyday Christianity, I sometimes hear people talk about uh, you know, our our initial salvation in terms of a cooperation in which, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're struggling to stay, you know, keep our nose above water, that sort of thing. And 
maybe were in the danger of drowning or the process of it, but nonetheless haven't. And, you know, Jesus comes along in that lifeboat and, and sort of th- tosses us uh, a life preserver to save us. But uh, really, it's up to us uh, whether we are going to, to latch on to it or not. Uh, it, it, in contrast, though, when we come to the biblical text, you think of a, you know, a Paul and, and Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, especially Ephesians 2, how he starts, uh, there's this far more radical language of spiritual death uh, so that we're not just, you know, struggling to stay afloat. We, we've actually drowned. Uh, we're, we're laying down at the bottom of the ocean. What we really need is a, a spiritual resurrection. In light of that, in light of that, uh, is this, maybe you could comment for a minute on the doctrine of uh, how it's described today, total depravity. Sometimes people use the, the phrase pervasive depravity. Uh, what does this get at? What, what do the reform mean by it? And in what sense is it total? Is it, is it in respect to uh, degree? Is it in respect to extent? Maybe you can help our listeners out. Right. Well, yeah, when we hear total depravity, some people use that as sort of a, a shorthand Christian curse word, you're totally depraved. And the suggestion is, well, you're absolutely wicked, despicable, as bad as you possibly can be. Well, that's not what Dort was meaning by totally depraved. And that's not what we see in the Bible in a proximate sense. Someone like Cornelius could, could be known for charity and for good works. Now, ultimately, those were not truly good if they did not have God's glory as their object and the right motives and for the right reasons to the right ends. But total depravity does not mean that your next-door neighbor would just as soon spit in your face as bake you a pie. What it means is that the extent of sin's damage is pervasive. So in the medieval system, you might argue that you have higher and lower faculties, and perhaps the the baser, lower faculties and animal instincts and appetites, those are affected by the fall, but perhaps reason or higher faculties of the mind might be less affected or be able to conquer those lower faculties. And the reformers to a person said, no, 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 that's not how sin works. It's not just parts of us, it's not just some faculties or others, but it is pervasive in its entirety. There is no one good who seeks after God, no, not one. The only thoughts and intentions of their hearts were evil all the time. That that is our spiritual state, and there is no remedy, therefore, within ourselves. You can't pit one faculty against another. We must have a rescue from the outside, entirely outside of us if there is any hope of change and salvation. We've been talking to Kevin DeYoung about the nature of grace, but let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The Ph.D. Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases, 
and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But we've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the PhD track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your PhD today for the church. We're back from our break and ready to return to our conversation with Kevin DeYoung about grace and the controversy at the Synod of Dort. Kevin, one way that uh, I, I appreciated uh, you articulating this and, and you know transitioning from man's depravity to the type of grace being uh, not just supernatural but monergistic in nature, one thing mm-hmm. I appreciated about how you spelled this out is, is the way um, you, you sort of contrast how in Arminianism, uh, or, or if we look at, say, the remonstrance leading up to Dort, even though grace is, is prevenient and in, in one sense could be even universal, just uh, a grace that enables uh, the sinner to to be, to then enter into a state where the, the will is capable and able to then to then act. Um, in that sort of scheme, as much as grace may be prevenient, uh, there's still a strong, strong emphasis and dose of conditionality. Uh, so so that even, right. even with grace being prevenient. Uh, nonetheless, God's w- whether God comes through on regeneration uh, ultimately is conditioned upon what what the individual does with that prevenient grace, and and then you contrast that with the reformed and how they go to great lengths and sometimes even very precise details to ensure that unconditionality. Uh, pervades their entire uh, articulation of grace. Maybe you could contrast those two for a second. It's such an important distinction, and again, it can look like fine hair splitting, but sometimes the hairs are very important to be split, like this one. Is the work of grace a, a gift from God with which we cooperate or is it a sovereign, unilateral, irresistible grace? You, you mentioned some of those key words there, conditional or unconditional. In Reformed soteriology, it's unconditional. through into the, the election is unconditional. The atonement doesn't come attached to further conditions. Conversion is not based on human willing and receiving, though there is an, an act of faith, the will is not inoperative. We may talk about that in a moment, but it's unconditional versus conditional. Or the another way of saying it is it's not merely sufficient, it is efficient. So the Arminians, the Remonstrants, were happy to say that God's grace comes, and it is sufficient. It comes upon all, and it is sufficient that they might be awakened and that they might then have the ability to cooperate and to choose what is good. And form theologians say, no, no, that's not enough to say it's merely sufficient. It actually is efficient. It, God accomplishes the work that he means to accomplish, not just making us savable, but making us saved. And so this 
language of efficient is critical in really throughout the can of the door, talking about the atonement, certainly here, and talking about the way in which God gives us new birth, not just, here's an option, I'm sort of propping you up on your, your two feet now that you can go and run the race, but rather Christ has won the victory for us, and then it is credited wholly to our account, apart from us cooperating with it. You said the word monergistic, it's a really important word for Christians to understand, the opposite being synergistic, that prefix soon just meaning with. Are we, are we working with God in this miracle of new birth? And Jesus really couldn't be any clearer in John chapter 1, that it is not by human will or a husband's decision, but you are born of God. A child does not decide to be conceived, but it is the will and act of another whereby he is given life, and so it is with our spiritual life. That word monergistic, uh, like you mentioned, is, is it, so much hinges on this, uh, whether we're talking about our calling, uh, God calling us effectively or effectually mm-hmm. uh, to, to his son, or whether it's the new birth itself, maybe the flip side of that coin in which, you know, how, how are we born again? Uh, well, it's, a, it's, it's God's doing entirely. It, it's mono, monergistic. Um, th- those, those phrases are so key. Now, I, I'm afraid I'm going to, you know, just explode our, our listeners' uh, <laughs> uh, paradigm here because there's a point in which you're talking about, about all this, and uh, you bring up Wesley's famous hymn, And Can It Be? Uh, this is a hymn. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, this, talk, Kevin, I mean, talk about stepping on toes here. Uh, this is a hymn that, um, well, we so many of us love, and, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's one that's been passed down for good reason. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in many ways, uh, it, 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 it captures so much that's true, but... But uh, Wesley may mean something different than what, what uh, maybe Reformed people mean when they sing it. Uh, you think of his line, for example, where he says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and uh, then he rejoices, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Um, in light of what we've just learned, um, this, some of these phrases, uh, may not be able to be, uh, manipulated or, or taken captive for reform purposes, do you think? Or does Wesley, what does he have in mind here when he's saying these things? Well, unfortunately, I, I am quite certain he doesn't have in mind what I mean in my mind when I sing it, and what lots of Reformed Christians probably mean when they sing it, and and that is the monergistic, supernatural, unilateral, irresistible grace that causes me to be born again, thine eye diffuse a quickening ray, I'm born again, and of course, the response is faith and obedience, but it's God's work through and through. Of course, Wesley believes in grace and writes about grace, but he, he was a knowledgeable theologian, and we, we know from his writings that he very much did not agree with Whitfield and others who argued for 
Calvinistic distinctives and soteriology. So it seems highly unlikely to me that he has slipped into Reformed theology unwittingly. Rather, I think, as you suggested, this particular line is about the glories of prevenient grace, Mm. that God's prevenient grace awakened us, quickened us, brought us to a state where we could then, the sort of the chains of our sinful bondage fell off, and now we had a freedom, and with that freedom we rose, we went forth, and we followed Thee, having been enabled in the human will to then meet that condition. So God's grace being sufficient, but it is not the effectual sort of grace that I think we as Reformed Christians might understand it to be. Does that mean we can't sing it? Well, I... I'm not ripping it out of my hymnal, but some historical (laughs) awareness would certainly be necessary to at least understand that we shouldn't make Wesley to mean what he almost certainly did not mean. Now, if we go this direction and say the calling, um, when you you think of John 6, for example, this this call uh, is effectual, it's effective. It actually accomplish, accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Um, the the new birth. It's uh, this is a God's doing. It, it's it's a spiritual miracle in that sense. Uh, it's it's monergistic. Um, we're we're just as passive as you know the, as the illustration itself conveys as as that infant in the womb who who is then born. If we follow this through, uh, does that mean? Must it mean that regeneration precedes faith in what has been called the order of salvation, the ordo salutis? So regeneration must precede faith. We, we do, by an act of the will, believe in Christ. So the Kansas Dorda are very clear on that, that we're not stones and blocks to be moved around. This, this is why the, the straw man argument that Calvinists believe that we're just robots or we're puppets on a string doesn't, doesn't work, or at least that's not what Calvinists should believe, because a puppet on a string has no will. It has no faculty of choosing anything. It is simply manipulated by external coercion and compulsion. So that's not what we believe in the miracle of new birth. Uh, and Cannon's uh, daughter are clear on that. The will is not obliterated, but the will must first be regenerated, must be given a new will, and not simply a new possibility. That's not what we mean by a gift of God's grace, but rather the effectual acting of it. So God's will is prior to our will, and yet there is a will to repent and believe. We don't... I, I, I want people to make a choice for Christ. I don't have a problem with that language, but I want them to understand that if they make a choice for Christ, it is only because God has first supernaturally, unilaterally, irresistibly given them a new will and grace to do so. I mean, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. You you can't come unless the Father draws. But then he also says that in anyone who comes, I will in no wise cast out. So it's not as if Jesus ever says to someone who comes to him, 
you want fa- or you want to believe, you want uh, forgiveness, you want eternal life, you want to belong to me. Uh, sorry, you're not elect. No, that's not how salvation works. Rather, those who are truly elect will come and plead with Christ, and when they do, it is evidence that they have already been regenerated. Now, those who are listening may be thinking at this point, okay, I I think I understand you, Kevin. You're saying that our calling's effectual, our regeneration is monergistic, uh, any anything that the will then you know this is this is because the will is first regenerated, but uh, then comes faith. So regeneration must precede faith, but then comes faith, and well, that's my doing, right? Uh, that 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 must be what I do, uh, but that's not entirely accurate either. Or or when we look at Dort, that's not exactly how they um, right. they articulate it. What what is the difference between say how the remonstrance define faith and how the Reformed define faith? I, I use in the, the book a sort of homely analogy that, say, in one scenario, your father comes home and he announces for your birthday that he's a surprise for you and he drives you to a local car dealership and he tells you, here's the car, it's yours. If you want it, I paid for it, I signed the papers, you just have to Grab the keys, up in the car, drive it off. Well, you could rightly say that that's a, that's a gift. And the convertible is free, and you have to decide to take it. That's how many people would understand the gift of faith, well, the, the gift of, of eternal life. Uh, and yet that's an Arminian view. So another scenario would be you're lying unconscious in a hospital bed, and you don't know who you are, where you are, what you've done. You should be dead. The doctors have pronounced you dead a minute ago, but now your heart is beating. The hospital is pumping blood into your veins when you had just bled out. Now, that's, a, that's also a gift. Someone else's blood for you, putting into you when you had no ability to ask for it, resist it, or receive it. So those are two different conceptions of what both instances you could say, well, you've received a great gift. Uh, both are unmerited, gracious, and yet one is activating and renewing and implanting within you effectually to live and to do according to his purpose, while another is external and outside of you that you might then choose for yourself. So we certainly believe that there are choices to make. But as the canons say, it's not a gift, the gift of faith, in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits our assent, so that the act of believing is rather just from our choice. But it's a gift in the sense that God is the one both willing and acting and working to produce the will to believe and the belief itself. It's not a gift of faith and just open it, but it is the gift that God has wrought in us effectually whereby we come to Christ. Kevin, when those listening, if they go after after listening to you, they go to um, read Dort on, on this issue, they may be surprised that after, you know, as Dort's defining, okay, what is regeneration? What is faith? And they're, you know, 
going to great lengths to make sure they get these right, as you just articulated, they may be surprised to also discover that Dort doesn't just stop there, that they, the, the authors actually continue to talk about things like humility and charity as opposed to pride and, and, and all kinds of other forms of, of haughtiness or boasting, or maybe we could even throw suspicion in there. Is there, so, so let me ask you this as we, as we close, is there something intrinsic to the way the Reformed have understood grace as, as effectual and monergistic, or maybe you know, some, some might use the word irresistible? Uh, is there something intrinsic to it that should lead the believer to a humility as opposed to a pridefulness? A proud Calvinist should be a contradiction in terms. Sadly, it's, it's sometimes not. We're sinners, and yet the two should not go hand in hand, because at the heart of a Reformed understanding of soteriology is the conviction that we have contributed nothing. I mean, at the, at the end of all of the questions, okay, why... Are some people saved and some people aren't? And you say, well, they had this teaching, or they didn't, or they uh, had a good upbringing, or they didn't. And you, you go through all these sort of human explanations. When you get to the to the end, you, you have you, you have to either say, well, the difference behind all of those differences is God, or or you leave just a a tiny little smidge of well, it was maybe a little bit me, something I, I cooperated, I had the will to do so, I was enlightened, and so I made the right choice. And in a proper reform soteriology, we say, no, no, absolutely nothing, not one speck, not one little iota of contribution to our salvation. And that ought to make us, of all people, most humble, most gracious, most contrite, most broken over our sin, most aware of all that God has done for us, because we know we have deserved none of it and contributed nothing to it except for our sin. We've been talking to Kevin DeYoung, who is the senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. Uh, he also teaches systematics at RTS in Charlotte, uh, but he's also the author of uh, a new book called Grace Defined and Defended, and we've been looking at uh, just a sliver of that uh, when it comes to regeneration and conversion and faith itself. Uh, Kevin, uh, this is such an important book. Uh, I would just encourage our listeners, if, if you've enjoyed this, uh, pick up Kevin's book and uh, dive into some of the other chapters, uh, the, the many other doctrines of grace uh, that uh, will help you walk away with uh, a much more biblical, uh, sound, and theological understanding of grace itself. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you and grateful for all of your work on this topic and so many other important theological 
areas. So thanks for having me, Matthew. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.